This call may be recorded or transcribed. Hello, Robbie. Hi, Ernie. Hey, so, yeah, I, I've been feeling like this was a conversation we needed to have at some point, and I wasn't quite sure how to have it, and then I had this dream, which um, the title was Unmasked, and uh, there's lots of different themes there, but when I was reflecting on it, the thing that struck me most what? is there's this recurring... For your audience? Sorry, still you there? Want, do you want to read the dream for your audience? Uh, no, I'll put a link in the show notes if we uh, okay. end up publishing this. Uh, I'll touch on it, is that um, there's a, a blue color that recurs in several points of the dream. <laughs> there's one place where it's a money changer's pouch, uh, one place where it's a mask I'm wearing in a place where nobody else is wearing masks, and then there's a third place where it's my son's uh, sneaker socks or whatever, where he's uh, accidentally stomping on my um, AirPod Pro. Uh, my right. son was borrowing them last week, but he was quite careful with them. The interesting thing for me, though, about the color blue, I was clicking on that, it occurred to me that, uh, you know, as you know, we've had discussions uh, about your concerns about the uh, sort of public response to COVID and more generally concerns about the medical industry. And, and more, the, even more generally, the uh, uh, shift from respecting differences of opinion and conscience to uh, requiring everybody line up regardless of whether they agree. Okay, so uh, personal autonomy. Um, so well, uh, the, uh, there's, Many ways to slice. But let me, so let me, the, the three uh, things that I noticed in that, uh, what I mentioned was uh, a, a inter, the medical, uh, the huge incentive of the medical industry as represented by the money changer, which is you know, kind of a negative picture in scripture. There's this sense of uh, casual disregard of facts which I think isn't something that has been your concern about how various things that would be low cost and beneficial have been ignored or denied by professionals. And kind of a disregard of personal autonomy, not respecting sort of people's rights to make their own decisions and kind of live their own life and have their own stuff. And I thought that was a good point to start the conversation. And I think well, so I like the three, let me just make one other uh, point, which is that I, I don't want to, is that I don't know how to think about this. Uh, uh -huh. So I thought a good first point, we just try to understand how do we feel about these things? And so not trying to educate truth values or logic, okay. but just trying to understand what are the things you're feeling? And, yeah. you know, using this frame as a template to have that conversation. So I was trying to break in to just say that your sound quality is really bad, and I'm not sure how much I'm hearing. But um, I think I heard enough to uh, understand that you're asking how, uh, if we could discuss how we feel about something. And particularly uh, the, you know, I, in my dream, I uh, noticed some 
perspective that I thought might reflect where you're coming from and just to use that as a starting point to talk about how do you feel or what are the things that bother you as it were. And we can start um, with this issue of autonomy, like which you already brought up. Well, so I, I'm just about to write a friend about this and the, the sentence I worked out actually Jackie and I in conversation. In much of the world, the gospel only advances through believers who disobey the government to follow their conscience in sharing the gospel. Um, I I am a person that likes to comply. I like to get along. I don't like to cause tension. I um, grew up in a home where there was a lot of tension and I'm a peacemaker. I try and avoid that. I try and uh, serve and do anything I can to smooth things over. And this has been a handicap when it comes for me to sharing the gospel. And I feel, um, I mean, I, I guess I'm describing not feeling, but uh, um, my sense in the course of the convictions that I've developed around masking that God is using this as a training ground for me to stand for what I believe rather than simply complying with what others uh, ask or require me to do. Still there? Yep. Just to try and reduce the background noise. Let me just re rephrase what I heard you say. Sure. Is that you have a past history of, um, because you grew up in a home full of conflict, of really being conflict avoidant. And yes. you believe that one of the things God wants to work, have you work on during the time of COVID, is to get better at standing up for what you believe. Yeah, the kind of peaceful protest, um, or passive protest. And, uh, okay, so, it, so sorry. Okay, yeah. so let me, because that's, okay, this is a significant addition that you're making. So I want to make sure I capture that. Keep going. Sure. Um, yeah, and it's, it's, it's not that that's changed. I mean, that's still who I am. So, um, when you're acting out of your personality or character, it's often much more awkward. Um, when you're when you feel like God's dealing with you on something and you're trying to actively change that, it's still that doesn't mean it's natural or that it's done well or graciously. So I'm really, um, you know, uh, but that's a strong value of mine. I'm trying to uh, be uh, clear about my conviction and not impose that on others, but not simply give way to others who insist that I comply with their convictions. Right. So what I'm, uh, the, so, okay. So that part, I think I got, uh, the part okay. that like we're going to something like different was this idea of, first of all, I want to just affirm that like, you're not saying you're just really doing this well, but this is an important thing you're trying to learn how to do. And right. so yeah. you know, I think that's wonderful. Right. Uh, yeah. I think that's a, a noble thing. And, you mentioned that this idea of peaceful protest feels to you like a significant part of this emergence for you. Well, to me, that's or a tactic. Natural, yeah, that's the natural um, expression of this. Is I'm not trying to make a scene. I'm not trying to uh, 
um, force others to comply, but I feel like I need to engage in peaceful protest against others forcing me to comply. Passive resistance or whatever the phrase is from the civil rights movement and Gandhi and others. Yeah, well, I think the, the interesting, the, the thing that I think I've mentioned this before, the thing that I find a little odd, and maybe uh-huh. it's just my memory of framing, is that what I remember about the civil rights movement is nonviolence, which is yeah. specifically demonstrating moral superiority by reacting to violent abuse with um, passive resistance. And to me, that is, you know, I think was a great power of the civil rights movement and uh, the, the nonviolent movement, which is a little bit different than what I perceive the modern sort of peaceful protest as being. Uh, because like in some sense, if you're not getting beat up, it doesn't really count as nonviolent. And so certainly there are places where there is aggression being vented at people who don't conform. But I guess that was just a, uh, I guess as a historical point, I think there's a distinction between sort of true nonviolence and mere peaceful protest. Okay, so my mind makes sense to you. Well, no, my mind my mind isn't all clear on the distinction because my um you know my my mom um participated in some of the civil rights protests went down to that part of the country and she got her family driven out of a town in mississippi in two hours by uh inviting a black man to sit at the table during the spring break with the white students but um so i i have a i have an emotional attachment to that kind of standing up for the rights of others, but I don't, uh, I, I don't, I haven't studied enough to feel like I'm tracking with the distinctions you're making. Well, let me make it more concrete then. The okay. thing that is most interesting to me about the civil rights protests yeah. is not that they stood up for what they believed in. Uh, it is that they met aggression with non-aggression. Okay. So what would be, a, how would you relate that to the present? Well, I think one of the things that you observed when I was critiquing one of your responses is that mm-hmm. it didn't seem to include, a, uh, you, you were reacting sort of logically rather than with empathy. Yeah, yeah. So I think the interesting question for me, because like, I think this is a, uh, so, where does We're all in different places. Where does well, yeah, fit me... movement? Right. Uh, so, Where does, how does that relate to the civil rights movement? The idea of empathy. Um, the it's um, the thing that um, so empathy was a word you brought up. And well, I just responded. Oh, yeah, that was right. my you interpretation. You lack of empathy. Right. And, yeah. and to me, what I saw that as evidence of is that your primary, fo- well, actually, I'll be more direct. Uh, I think I talked about, well, okay, the phrase I used was that, you know, when I 
respond to somebody with a very analytical critique of their position. They, people often experience, sorry, you still yeah. there? Yeah, yeah. Okay, when I respond to people with a analytic critique of yep. their position, then they experience that as a type of violence. Right. And, and you know, you label that as a, a lack of empathy, and that's fair too. But for me, given this context of civil rights, it is um, interesting to me to think of not physical violence um, and not even necessarily done with intent to harm, but the uh -huh. idea that a logical critique is itself a form of violence and that that is um, counter to the spirit of nonviolence. And I think that was the sort of question I wanted to raise with you is like, if your goal is to in fact honor the spirit uh, of the civil rights movement, then it seems to me that one of the things to explore is what is a nonviolent response versus a uh, possibly intellectually violent response. I mean, it's a little stronger term than I would use for somebody else, uh, uh -huh. but it's certainly a term I've been using for myself to say, ah, when I am doing this, I see all the people who experience uh, uh, is another term. You said when I'm doing this, and then it went very badly warbled. When I'm doing what... the sort of intellectual testing, can you hear me now? I can, yes. I'm walking the dogs after yeah. lunch. Um, yeah. But uh, that when I engage in this sort of almost dispassionate intellectual critique, people experience uh -huh. that as violence. And it seems to me that if your goal is to try to honor and emulate the spirit of nonviolence from the civil rights movement, it's worth at least exploring that question. Is, yeah, okay. is this something you do? Do you think other people may experience that as violence? Is that a valid perception on their part? Yeah. And what would well, the alternative so, be? So that's the, that's the framing of the conversation. Whether you want to use the term empathy or not is sort of secondary. Right. Yeah, so just to try and get clear the way you look at the civil rights movement, uh, if I recall correctly, Rosa Parks sat in a portion of the bus that she wasn't supposed to sit in and was jailed for doing that. So would that be peaceful protest or is that some form of violence on her part? Or So certainly I think it's safe to say that what she did was provocative. Um, okay. And I think it's safe to say that she suffered, and I think this is key to the way the nonviolent works, she suffered greatly or she did. Now, she did certainly cause a lot of inconvenience to other people. No question about that, right? So it was disruptive, and there was a provocative act. But the thing to me that made, that makes nonviolence interesting as a strategy uh -huh. is that she put herself in a position where she suffered far more inconvenience, indignity, humiliation, et cetera, than she inflicted on anybody else. Right. She put herself in a vulnerable position where other people were able to, uh, you know, uh, treat her badly. Uh huh. And that to me is what was interesting about the Rosa Parks and in general about the civil rights movement. 
Yeah. Very so much when, pricing. Yeah. In a, in a sense. So, um, you know, there was a sign posted on the bus. This portion is not for, you know, this is not for blacks or whites only or whatever. Um, and it was it was clear, it was widely understood. It was uh, it had government sanction and all that. So, um, if a if a storefront has the signs that say "mask required," and I walk in without a mask, does that seem to you different in character from Rosa sitting in that portion of the bus? Um, potentially, right? Um, what are the the well, so one possibility, again, this is a factual question, which we're not going to really debate here. Yeah. Let's say hypothetically, um, if you had COVID and right. you exposed so, those people, hypothetically, I don't know if this yeah. is factual, hypothetically, right, this is one scenario, there are other scenarios, but in this yeah. scenario, um, you, you are already sick, you're going to have your course of treatment regardless, of course, the progression of the illness, however that mm -hmm. happens. That, but that by doing this, there is a chance, which may or may not have been lessened if the mask was worn. Right. That's not a factual question. We're not going to litigate here. But yeah. that other people could potentially suffer as much, if not more, than you did because of this act. Uh, and so in that sense, it feels like in that particular scenario, it feels different to me than the Rosa Parks scenario where she was the one who's making herself vulnerable to others rather than doing something that might make others vulnerable to you. Yeah, certainly if there's a chance. Like a, yeah, if I if there's a chance I have COVID, that's a whole different thing. Okay. And um okay, fair enough. Okay, so interestingly, okay. So you're saying that so in your mind, doing this thing if there's a chance you have COVID is totally different than if you did this when there's no chance of you having COVID. Well, yeah. If I have, if I think there's a chance I have COVID, I'm not going to go around other people. I'm not going to, whether I wear a mask or not. I don't think a mask is as any. Uh, okay, so, so this right? is a, okay. So this is a really fascinating epistemic point. Yeah. Um, is do you equate knowing that you might have COVID uh, with the actual possibility of having COVID? Well. Prior to last year, um, the widespread understanding of all epidemiologists was that symptomatic, uh, you have to have symptomatic level of disease to uh, be contagious. And uh, uh, the, you know, I do, I mean, that's a whole separate conversation of the political and financial. Again, I'm not discussing the facts or right. say, I'm just saying in your personal mind, when you're using that statement, do you equate those two as being synonymous? Well, and even if COVID didn't exist, if I, if I, oh, wait, what are the two statements? Sorry, sorry the question, I guess, let's, let's make it very narrow, is that do you believe, so is that the, do you believe that there is a non-zero possibility of asymptomatic transmission of COVID? Yeah, and of measles and of pneumonia and of anything else I might have. Okay, so there is the possibility of asymptomatic uh, infection. I can be infectious uh, without being symptomatic. I, I that is at least a theoretical possibility. Yeah, if you're going to say non-zero, I can say non-zero. <laughs> 
I would okay. say close so you, so, to okay. so, so, so just so I'm clear what you're saying is that certainly if you have um, so the, the I'm just trying to make sure I understand your logic here. Uh, what I heard you say was that if you knew that there was a chance of you having COVID, you would not enter an area without a mask. No, I just wouldn't go but there. You, I wouldn't take you wouldn't a go, mask. You wouldn't, you wouldn't take a mask, you wouldn't go at all. Right. right. And so right. the question is then, do you have confidence in your ability to determine whether or not you have a chance of being infectious? Well, that's the way civilizations lived up until no, this year. That's not, that's not a, okay, so that's an interesting argument. You didn't actually yeah. answer my question. Okay, so yes, I do uh, feel confident. You, in your ability. That okay, I, so that's the really interesting thing here, right? There's an epistemic well, claim you are making that you well, are a competent judge. <laughs> to clarify what I heard you say. Uh, you broke up after I'm a competent judge. So what I'm Sorry hearing again. you say is that yeah. you believe you're a competent judge of whether you are infectious or not, and that uh, you would, uh, and so therefore it feels unfair when people sort of prejudicious, uh, uh, prejudicious, um, prejudiciously with prejudice, sort of. Uh, treating you as if you are not a competent judge and therefore placing uh, unreasonable or unfair or at least ill. Uh, you broke up again after unfair or something. Okay, I'm, I'm getting close to home. So give me a second to get inside Wi-Fi sure. range and then hopefully I will be stationary and this will become less problematic. Do you wear a mask when you're uh, at work? I'm serious. I do not. When I am walking the dogs, my dogs are very good at keeping. My Quinn is very okay. good at social distancing. He's been practicing all his life to keep people far away from him. Oh, good. Yeah. Uh, okay. The, the, the rules in Santa Clara County currently are that if you are outdoors and you are vaccinated, you are not required to wear a mask. Right. That is the okay. social norm at this time and place. Yeah. Um, so, um, let me. Um, Rephrase what I said. So, what I'm hearing you say is that you believe you are a. Uh, <laughs> Once like again, you are to be infected. You cut so, off so, after. Okay. You cut off let me again. just find a, a small. Let me just go into a completely stationary place sitting on a chair. All right. <laughs> All right. In the shade, so I can camp out for a little while. So can I turn that question around right. and ask? All right, two I'm seated. Go ahead. Yeah. Let me ask. Two years ago, did you feel competent to decide when you were uh, sick enough to be contagious and when you should stay away from other people? Um, not entirely. I come from a family full of doctors, so I would have actually huh. asked my wife. And how would she determine I, whether you're safe to go around others? Um, she would ask a few questions like, are you sneezing? Do you have a fever? Um, you know, how long has this been going on, et cetera. So there's right. a sliding scale, you know, yep. in terms of our kids. Uh, like my daughter was complaining she wasn't feeling well. And like we checked her temperature and said, no, you have to go right. to school. 
right? We made a judgment call based on a certain amount of information. And, you know, I have a greater sense of autonomy on that than I do. But in uh, marginal cases, I appeal to authorities that I trust or at least feel it's legitimate to defer to them on. But in the scenarios you just mentioned, there was somebody had a sense of feeling unwell. It wasn't, you know, you're feeling perfectly good and you start to worry that you be carrying a cold or pneumonia or something right. that somebody catch, right? Yeah, and you know, and to be clear, there are arbitrary lines we draw. Like, for example, the school has a rule that back in pre-COVID times that if you yep. have a temperature over 100, you can't come to school. Uh, but if you've right. been less than that for 24 hours, you can come. Now, the reality yep. is you are probably infectious, you know, before you hit over 100. Uh, uh-huh. So, like, it's marginal, but it's like, you know, the trade-off that we determine is like, you know, there's a hassle to keeping the kids home. There's a hassle to other kids getting affected. And so there's sort of an arbitrary line that is drawn as a sort of a social part of the social compact we have with the school that right. we use to, you know, we try to respect that because it's like, okay, you, you, it's hard to make absolute statements. You make kind of an arbitrary line and we all agree as a community that we can kind of work with it. So that's how I viewed, you know, this sort of arbitrary 100 degree marker. And right. we, you know, made concessions based on that. Yeah. And sometimes they have yeah. different rules for like this. This thing you can self-certify as a parent. Uh, for certain grade levels to do this, you actually require a doctor's note. There's a different level right. of of yeah. uh, attestation required in those different contexts. So anyway, I'm not trying to ju- argue at this point whether this is valid or invalid. I'm just trying to understand right. what it is that is important to you. Uh, so, uh, and from your questions, uh, let, me, let me be more blunt. I'm feeling yeah. a little bit aggressed, the fact that okay. you're sort of giving me this kind of uh, third degree about, well, wouldn't you have done this? And what do you think? It was like, whoa, okay, I wasn't really trying to go there. So I don't know if maybe I was being too aggressive in my analytic investigation to make you feel yeah, well, like you're being put on the spot. Yeah, I feel like I was, you were being inconsistent with the way you would behave. You were pushing me on. How confident I am. No, sorry. About that. I, I, no, I, I, sorry. I wasn't trying to uh, um, box you into a corner. I'm uh-huh. just, so, and I, that was not my conscious intent. Maybe I was. I oh. don't know. Right? That's the whole point of this yeah. thing being difficult. Is, sure. is I am not, I mean, my whole premise is that we are not always self aware of what we're doing and we're not always reliable judges of our own intent or condition. That is kind of my high level point, including my own. Right. Right. Um, So, okay. So first of all, I apologize. That's not what I was hoping to do. So let me back Uh off a bit. Okay. I'm trying to understand what is the good thing that you are trying to protect. Yeah. And what I heard you say, which I thought was quite profound because it was not what I expected at all, is that Uh if you had reason to believe that you could be infectious, then you would just absent yourself from a situation. Mask is almost is a irrelevant consideration in that scenario. Sure, and yeah. so the interesting, so what I'm hearing you say, both in what you said and what you did, is that you believe that uh, being judges of our own, uh, you know, having our judgment trusted as to our own infectiousness is something that is A, uh, reasonable, and B, yeah you know, at least recently was commonly shared. Um, and therefore it seems sort of, um, let's say, ill-advised to just uh, cast that uh, aside. 
Yeah, well, so... Uh, um, Is that a fair summary of what I'm hearing you say, or...? Uh, well, so I, I think we've you've kind of referenced, but haven't really dug into the question of what's important to me in this. It's not okay. that... Uh, and the, the way you're phrasing it isn't connecting for me at all. Um, okay. So maybe we should try and press into what I do find significant, and then we can. Uh, so um, I, you know, you and I share a background in science, which I believe advances through open discussion and disagreement about how facts are interpreted, and. Uh, mm -hmm my uh, a major concern I am, I'm sorting this out rather than trying to prioritize it just comes to the service first is the censorship of uh, open discussion uh, the mm -hmm. YouTube videos that have been shut down the doctors that have been um, banned or marginalized uh, canceled whatever for uh, expressing disagreement and um, the, so the, there's a, a concern I have that builds on a prior perception that our whole medical um, system is driven largely by the financial interests of the pharmaceutical companies that fund the training institutions that guide the doctors in the way that they look at things. And that uh, from before, uh, what was the first early example I'd come across recently was iodine. For 70 years, iodine was widely um, uh, appreciated as a helpful treatment for many conditions until somebody was able to patent a competing product. And then iodine was, uh, you know, criticized and marginalized. Um, as, uh, uh, and so that they could solve this other thing. And uh, my observation of the history of medicine is that the simple, inexpensive, uh, widely available, safe uh, forms of treatment have been uh, doctors, the medical training institutions have um, persuaded and propagandized against safe, healthy, natural self-treatment in such a way as to maintain the industry profits, but at the expense of the health of the general populace. So on top of, you know, feeling confident about um, my state of health over the, over the past year and a half, I have dug into this area and my, my family has to a level of uh, quite profound health where we're, we do, when we do sense something coming on, we can deal with it within a few hours and uh, be free before it really takes hold of the body. Down. Okay, so I've heard so, a couple of things here. Okay, so you, um, all right, sorry, are you still in the middle of the narrative or are you? Oh, well, no, why don't we stop? So let's go ahead and summarize the points that you've heard. There are some other points I wanted to make because. Right, so I, so I think, so I think the point that I'll make upfront, which I think I said at the very beginning, is that one of your areas of concern is that the medical mm -hmm. industry is subject to skewed incentives. Right. Right, and as is every industry in various ways. Um, and the government. And, well, and, well, every institution, right, and, and government and individuals, yep. to, to, you know, just to be fair, right? Every institution individual is subject to skewed incentives 
And yeah. so that I think is still is is a uh, good starting point. It's like, okay, that's just the reality of the way the world is. Uh, right. Particularly, you feel that you've gained some level of expertise because you've studied how the medical industry is skewed. And secondly, you've been able to, within a local context, uh, be able to create a zone where, uh, by pursuing this uh, orthodox approach, you've seen dramatic improvements in your personal and family health. Right. 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 So, so, so there's two. I think there's sort of three points or two, 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 two significant points. One is that this industry is corrupt. Second is that. Uh, I believe I understand why it's corrupt and what the alternative is, and I have at least some data points to suggest that my analysis is correct because I'm able to be healthier without, you know, by disregarding this advice rather than taking it. Yeah, I'm aware enough of confirmation bias that I think I am able to fairly evaluate contrary data rather than just dismissing it. But, uh, you know, mm -hmm. that may be just self-illusion. Right. But you know that was, but that's kind of that was the point you were making, right? Did I did I capture that point well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No disagreement with okay. that. Okay, yeah, that's fair. Yeah, I, I, I have similar feelings about various other industries, so I can certainly empathize with that. Right. Um, I I also feel that the government has um, uh, that there are influences within the government. I don't think it's found fundamental to our system of government. But I think that there are elements within our government that, uh, uh, first of all, there are strong financial interests. The, the regulating bodies uh, are heavily funded by the pharmaceuticals that they're supposed to be regulating. And um, yeah, so can I the, just stipulate, uh, sure. Robbie, just to, in the interest of focusing in the conversation, like the point of skewed financial incentives, I agree, is completely true. Right. So, so you don't have to argue uh, that uh, point. Okay. No, no. The so additional, well, the additional point is that it influences the government as well as the medical right. industry. Yeah. Right. The, 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 there is a whole government uh, industrial complex going on here. Right. Uh, right. I, I stipulate to extend to all of that. Sure. Right. Um, uh, then there's this, um, the further, um, what I'm thinking of these days as a spirit of control that ah, uh, enters okay. into institutions, I wrote about that, you read the email, uh, that enters into institutions. So leaders, in my perception, uh, are have some level of skill at navigating division so as not to alienate large blocks of people. Um, but when you confront a, a, a leader, when a leader is confronted, by somebody who has privately been um, agitating or advocating for something, uh, leaders can often be pushed into letting some subgroup take control that uh, shifts away from the unity and agreement of the organization as a whole by virtue of the vocal minority. So whether that's removing okay. rules or funding for abortion or whatever else, yeah. Okay, well, so, slow down. So there's a, a bunch of different things that were going on there. Um, uh -huh. And I want to make sure I've heard and understand your points. Uh, you talked about a spirit of control. And then you talked about divisiveness. And then you talked about a vocal minority. And I wasn't sure if those are three separate points or were all one point or if you distinguish between them. 
I think I think they function together. Um, the, well, certainly they can reinforce each other, but they, to me they're different things. Like you can have a spirit of control which is firmly focused on the on the majority persecuting a local minority, per, persecuting right. minority. Right? right, that is one uh -huh. type of spirit of control. Right. Um, there's a second thing which is a vocal minority uh, convincing the broad populace that it right. is the majority. And then yeah. there's a third mechanism, which is the vocal minority seizing power sort of in a coup, if you will, uh, by exerting whatever influence so as to make uh, that even if there is a, uh, where uh, more or less explicitly uh, taking control. Um, yeah. And so My those are some different variations of it. It seems like you're sort of saying all three of these things are happening at once. And so you know, yeah, the, the context in which I'm seeing it, it looks to me like the sphere of control operating through a, a small minority, vocal minority, that's issuing ultimatums. And I think that's a key part of what makes okay, it the sphere interesting. of control. Okay, minority. got you. Uh, okay, so that's interesting. So the, and when you say spirit, you're not just meaning this in a metaphorical sense, you actually think of this as a literal spiritual evil. Yeah, some somehow related to the principalities and powers. Okay, that's interesting. Okay, um, and that's interesting to me, right? This is where this goes from being a question of sort of an epistemic question about uh -huh. data and information, right, to being a belief about, for lack of a better word, knowledge of good and evil. Uh huh. Okay right, is like, okay, there's something evil at work here, and I've seen yeah. it at work, and I've seen the consequences of it, and that takes this to a whole new level. Right. As opposed to merely an intellectual disagreement about a series of facts. Well, I haven't done a wide survey, but I know some churches that are uh, at higher numbers and, you know, better off than they were before COVID hit, and those appear to be the ones that respect and honor the conscience of the individual before God over the um, pronouncements of the state, where it seems okay. like- well, 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 Okay, so, so, so you're, the, the, you're, um, you're adding another layer here, so I'll make sure I'm hearing right. this, yeah, yeah. right? So, okay, so then in addition to, so there's a uh, epistemic issue. Let's label the first thing an epistemic slash uh, there's an epistemic issue, there's an uh -huh. economic issue, okay, and there is a spiritual issue, and then there is sort of a, um, let's call it a practical issue. Yep. Okay, where you're seeing that, like, okay, these churches have uh, adopted this policy and they seem to be even better than those who didn't, okay? Right. Um, you know, uh, pragmatic. Yep. Uh, to keep our ICs going. So, epist uh, uh, I guess let's, let's uh, keep the parallelism epistemic, economic, demonic, and pragmatic. Uh huh. Okay. Okay. Uh, so, those are the kind of the four issues. Uh, I guess there's a politic issue of, you know, the, the sense of a small group of people getting control of the levers of power uh, in order to. Um, enforce their will on others you know when a few large donors in a church say you have to do you know you have to skip camp worship yeah. style 
whatever. It used to be right, yeah. worship big divisive issue. Now it seems like uh, mass has become that. But. Yeah, it's interesting. It's, it's interesting to think about this historically. Um, uh-huh. So anyway, okay, but but I'm, uh, I'm I'm right now I'm just collecting data. I'm not analyzing yet, or I guess I'm yeah. analyzing. I'm not reaching conclusions. I'm trying to I'm trying to categorize to make sure I have heard the the range of concerns that you're bringing to the table. Yeah. Well, for uh, so another piece of this concern is that I think the mask give a false sense of security. Um, mm-hmm. uh, more than they give a positive benefit. So, uh, you know, people who are involved in medicine know that it's very important that you treat the mask in certain ways to keep it sterile, and that if mm-hmm. you don't, that breed an infection in the mask. Um, but mm-hmm. the majority. Right, so there's people, a moral hazard perspective that you're concerned with about the policy. So I'm not sure why you put the word moral. There's a medical hazard. Um, possibility. Oh, sorry, that's, it's, 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 it's a legal term from the insurance industry, moral hazard, making, making people right, wear seatbelts could increase accidents. Uh, you know, smoking, you know, like the, the, the idea that moral hazard is a technical term in the, in the insurance industry, that like if you insure a ship, the, the captain may be less safe in steering it, or even has an incentive to commit arson to burn down a ship to get the, the results. That's what I meant by moral hazard. I wasn't trying to moralize. I was just using the term of okay. art. Okay. Well, in any case, uh, the point being that um, from, uh, you know, I, I I try hard to hear both sides of things before making a decision, at least that's my ethos, whether I do that or not, I can't, uh, you know, I just have my perspective. But uh, right. I, the, the, the confirmation bias uh, or my uh, unbiased review, whatever it is, has led me to... Uh, strongly suspect that it is more uh, health compromising for the general populace to wear masks than for us simply to ask people who feel like they might be uh, contagious to, you know, self-quarantine and uh, Mm -hmm. ask those that feel particularly susceptible to take whatever precautions they feel they need to take. And that, okay, so okay, that's a sort of conclusion you have reached based on all these other things. Yeah, yeah. Is so what I might you be think wrong. of as a right, reasonable possibility. Yeah, reasonable yeah. as a reasonable possibility given your your epistemic beliefs. Okay, so that's interesting. So, uh, yeah. Okay. I, um, did I? Is there anything else? Well, yeah. So I further perceive that most people are, or many people, not I won't go as far as most. But uh, many people are not, don't have a high confidence in the science or the government's interpretation of the science, Uh, but they're willing to, they're inclined just to go along with things that they don't agree with that may even compromise their health um, rather than um, resist, you know, what they're being asked to do. Mm -hmm. And that people like that are uh, strengthened and encouraged to follow their own conscience when they see somebody else following their own conscience. Ah, okay, so, right. So there's well, a, okay. Uh, so let me just okay. Sorry, continue. I want to so capture that. To, 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 making the point. To, to, to conclude that, so I feel I believe I'm actually doing a service for others when I choose not to mask in the midst of what seems to be the 
contemporary insanity. Interesting. Okay, so let me rephrase what I heard you say to make sure I catch yeah. it. I think this is important. You mentioned yeah. how you have a personal history where you feel like you were, um, you know, uh, you are conflict avoidant and right. that God is using this to help you to uh, learn how to take a stand. And it, it also sounds like you feel like this is actually a problem a lot of other people have too. And therefore, uh, when you do this, you're not just helping yourself, you're also helping others because you're demonstrating the validity of this underrepresented viewpoint or, or approach. Yeah, and the, this is the, the yeah the sense that God is uh, leading me in this to uh, strengthen my ability to stand uh, to oppose injustice or whatever uh, is a fairly late observation in my whole process. Even though that came up early, that's been kind of a later conclusion, not a driving uh, awareness from the beginning. Interesting. Okay. So even though it came up earlier in our conversation, you're saying it came up later in the actual development of this whole unmasking uh, yeah, uh, uh, journey you've been on and the sort of general medical contrarianness yeah. or whatever. Yeah. I did, you know, okay. one of the early, earliest things I listened to about COVID uh, suggested that this was a uh, Luciferian agenda to um, shift humans into looking at each other as enemies, as vector, disease vectors, uh, rather than um, creations of God with whom God designed us to connect. And that's, uh, that's interesting. So, so, okay. Yeah. Okay, so let me actually repeat this back because I think this is really critical. Uh huh. What I'm hearing you say is the most important thing is that we acknowledge and honor each other as valuable creations and gifts of God, rather right. than seeing others as threats. Uh -huh. Is that what I heard you say? Yeah, and that there's a there's a Luciferian or you know demonic agenda. Sinister, to yeah, use right. Cool. I, I agree. Okay, but, but, yeah. but yes. Okay. Fair enough. Okay. So have I heard? Uh, have I heard you correctly? Do you feel like the things I've repeated back have captured the points you wanted to make? Yeah, yeah, I think you've done a great job. Okay, so here's the funny thing. Uh-huh. I agree with you on the last part, mm -hmm. which is that Satan wants to use this to divide us and demonize the other and right. refuse to accept the value of each other. Yeah. But like the previous points you made make me feel like you're helping him. Mm -hmm. So there's another narrative here, which is interesting okay. to me. And like, let's forget all the political economic ones. Cause like, I, I'm, I'm a radical. I believe all our institutions are, are, are terminally corrupt. Right. Right. And uh, uh, so, you know, any particular, the thing that's interesting to me though, is precisely this question, what is Satan's, strategy and how do we defeat him yeah okay and so i don't know if you know this but i grew up as a fundamentalist uh, okay. you know, my parents believed in six-day creation and uh you know that to be believing in six-day creation was to believe in the literality of the word of god and to be 
uh, a literalist about the word of God was what it meant to be a true believer in God. And that was the most uh, fundamental part of being a Christian was that fundamentalism. And it's okay. because of that, the more majority, the cultural narrative I grew up with was, see how good the world was when Christians were in charge and how horribly these secular people have screwed it up. That was um, the narrative I grew up with. And okay. I now look back and say, you know, there is a half truth there. Uh-huh. Because, um, and I, you know, I keep coming back, and maybe this is our next CBJ, is the woman at the well. Right. It's like, you know, we the Jews worship what we do know. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. Like, I feel like the fundamentalists are right in that, like, they know the God they worship. They are uh -huh. the keepers of that tradition. Okay. But that yeah. doesn't stop them from being Pharisees and crucifying Jesus. Uh -huh. It's like a really good thing, a really important thing, but it is not the most important. Uh, and it's, and so that is the background I am coming from. And so when I hear your narrative of like all these things about the secularisms and prayer in schools and abortion and all this stuff, it's like, yeah, I see that. And these are grievous things, okay? There are a whole bunch of downstream negative consequences of these things that are generally sad and worth grieving over. Yeah. But, to me, the most important thing is not to give in to Satan's plan and say, oh, those evil people doing evil things, we have to oppose them because they're the problem. So I, I would distinguish between institutions and people, but um, I don't see any evil can people you? in this. Well, I, 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 yeah. I would have trouble I mean, not saying it, it was evil, but yeah. Yeah, but I mean, like, they're not necessarily that the people are evil, but they're doing evil things, or they've given them a false over to the service of evil. There's clearly a them, right? When you have a vocal minority who want something, you know, they're composed of people. Well, so, you know, I, I don't have found that people with one person believing that the world was created in six days and somebody else believing it was whatever many millions of years. Right, but if they like, want to make it a law that you have to teach evolution or if they want to make it a law that we have to allow women to have abortions, you know, that's a thing that they're the, doing, right? Yes, this came up in uh, the same context with this group I'm working with where somebody wanted to say we will we'll only allow people to present one view of creation at this uh, conference and the exec decided, no, we're not going to you know, allow that kind of, uh, so it seems to me uh, inconsistent to say, we will allow the variety expression on creation, but we won't allow a variety of perspective on the mask. Also, let me ask you a question. Um, yeah. Do you think, well, okay, so fine. Uh, uh, I don't expect enormous amounts of consistency from human beings, but, um, I think that's kind of the thing. So the, the thing that is, okay. So let me tell you what I think, and let me see if you can hear me. You may not sure. agree, but I want to try and get to yeah. yeah. So when I yeah. look at this, um, I think Satan has a plan A, a plan B, and a plan C. And more. Yeah. I think he's actually really good at his job. But no, specifically, there's, 
there may only be three actually, I don't know, at any given time. Um, so plan A is for, um, oh, let's call this the Pharisee plan. Okay. His plan A is for the, um, actually no, that's, that's, that's fair. Let's, let's call this the, um, um, the, the, the Jezebel plan. Okay, plan A. That is for a, small, a, a individual person or a small number of people who genuinely hates God, uh -huh. okay, to subvert, twist, and destroy all the good things that God is doing, okay? Yeah. I think that's a fair, you know, label to stick on Jezebel, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and, 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 and because they're concerned about, you know, the, the, the selfishness and power. And, okay, well, let's call that Satan's planning. Satan loves planning, right? There's all sorts of uh, wonderful, uh, horrible pain and injustice and misery and oppression and hopelessness that are created by planning. Okay. And I, I, yeah, and I agree. I think there are people in the world who have sold themselves to do evil. I don't know that I know anybody personally like that. Right. Uh, I, well, I, I will be blunter than you with that. There is a part of me that can identify with that. Okay. Okay, is that, you know, that just wants to do what I want. This is usually when I'm in my addictive phases, uh, uh -huh. which I haven't been in for a while consciously. Uh, but anyway, but, so to me, it's a, it's a sliding slope uh, okay. of, of opportunity and dissolutement. But anyway, we agree that there is such a thing as plan A, okay? Yep. The second thing, let's call this the Pharisees. This is plan B, which is where Satan, if he can't get the world to fall apart in plan A, his goal uh -huh. is to actually get the people who actually do love God as best they understand him yeah. and are devoted to the things of God uh, as they have known them. And they yeah. become so consumed with defending and protecting and honoring the things of God that they end up crucifying Jesus. Okay. I think that is what I call plan B. Would you agree that plan B exists? Yeah, I think uh, imp imposing our understanding on others and requiring them to conform to us rather than God. Oh, oh, oh hold on, hold on. That's not what I said. Okay, okay that's the so, way I see the Pharisees. So what I saw the Pharisees is they were the experts on the law. Right. They so the first case is people who are who consciously see themselves as pursuing, you know, money, power, things that are not of God. Okay, that's right. plan A. Okay. Plan B for Satan is to get the people who actually are sincere and serious about yeah. pursuing the things of God. Okay? And the thing that they do because of that is they obsess over the things of God to the point of crucifying Jesus. That to me is the, is the, is the his, his plan B is to take over the religious establishment such that they keep on doing all the motions and rituals and trappings of God, which he may have ordained, or the bronze serpent problem, right? But they do that in in a way that, that, that they can justify murdering Jesus in order to sustain their edifices. 
That's right, the thing so that to me is the essence of plan B. It's not about controlling the population. It's about killing Jesus. Well, so I, I, to me, those are very tight. So let me... Uh, uh, no, no, uh, oh, okay. So, so, so this is to me is a very fundamental distinction. So I don't want to let you conflate those in terms of what I am saying. Yeah, okay. Because if you're saying so, you don't understand what I'm saying, that's fine, but don't change what I'm saying, please. Okay, so you're not saying that Jesus was killed for nonconformity or for um, undermining their power base and their control, but he was crucified. I'm, I'm not following what you are saying. He was crucified. Okay, good. Thank you. Not the, thank you. Yeah. I'm, 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 glad, I'm, I'm glad that we've got honest confusion because that's where we can start to have a conversation. Yeah. Uh, doubt is the opposite of drive. Okay, so what I am saying is that the most important thing for the Pharisees was that they believed that they were on God's side, that they were the keepers of the truth. And what Jesus did that threatened them was questioning their identity as keepers of the truth and the ones who defend God. And that, um, that the fundamental sin, if you will, of Jesus against the Pharisees is that he claimed to know God better than they did. And their whole uh, reputation was built on the fact that they were the ones who knew God best. And everything else that came out of it, the power, the prestige, the status, was based on that very deep self-identification. That's my claim. Okay, well, I can accept that's your claim. Um, okay. I, Sorry for me to fit that with how I read scripture, but um, uh, okay. okay. So, so the, well, let me, let, let's let's let, let's take the the literal temporal statement. Uh, you know, it is better for one man to die than the nation to perish, because you know, otherwise, Satan, uh, you know, Pilate will come and uh, Romans will come and take away our place. Yeah. Right? Okay. That's so exactly we could there. There's some diversity of perspectives on what is their place. Is it their spiritual position? Is it their power position? Is it their economic position? Okay, uh, there's a variety of things all wrapped up in that, which are co-located together. But here's the point that I would make, which I think is an interesting one to make, and see if you can at least understand how it makes sense, even if you don't agree with it, yeah. which is that the reason that all those things are important to them is because they were part of their identity. Does that seem plausible? Like this, the, the power, the trappings, the status, the prestige, you know, all those things, that they see those things as part of their identity. So as to lose those would have been to lose their identity. And therefore, this was an existential problem for them. Yeah, okay, well. Uh, and, and, and let me give yeah. you a counterexample, which is Nicodemus. Okay. Uh -huh. Nicodemus had all of those things. Yep. Right? But for Nicodemus, the, um, you know, even if he wasn't quite willing to let go of everything to follow Jesus, he at least was saying, wait a second, you know, there's other things which are more important. Right. You know, there's due process, there's things. And, and I think this is actually a fair thing to say. The reason the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, I guess if you want to be more general, uh, uh -huh. felt uh, 
and this is actually a very profound part of my philosophy, so it's probably worth to wrestle with this if it doesn't make sense to you, is okay. that the reason people do evil things is because they feel that they are facing an existential crisis, and this is what they need to feel safe. And yeah, well, they I, felt like, I, is that if yeah. I don't act now and take yeah. care of this troublesome thing, I will lose that which is core to my being. Yeah, yeah. So that point you'll buy. So, uh, so going back to, so the spirit of Jezebel, as I relate to it, is um, genuine evil that is simply selfish and self-centered. Um, where the Pharisees' uh, reaction is against things that create at least perceived threats, whether or not they're real. It's not that's, out of... That's not, actually, no, that, that's not what I said. So let me be more precise. Okay. Okay. The spirit of Jezebel explicitly positions itself as being against God uh, in favor yes. of these other things. Whereas right. the Pharisee spirit positions itself as being for God. Right. Okay. Even though all these other things seem to get sucked up underneath that mantle. That yep. to me is the difference between plan A and plan B. Well, so I struggle with um is everything that uh, perceives itself as for, for God uh, fall into the Pharisee spirit and I don't uh, uh, well, but that, 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 this is this this is how I am categorizing my plan A and plan B. Yeah. Okay. okay. Is that there's a sort of irreligious anti-God spirit, uh, and then there's a uh, a spirit that uh, you know that there's a spirit that rebels directly against God, right? And there's a spirit that claims to represent God, uh, but is you know deceived or deceptive. You know, take your pick. But like to me that. The interesting thing to me is yeah. that like Satan's plan A is like he loves to just tear down everything to do with God. But if he can't do that, right. his plan B is to infiltrate that so that people define their identity uh, around things other than Christ. So then when Christ comes, they get rid of Christ rather than have to lose the things they identify with. So what's the difference between Noah believing that God had spoken to him and preaching righteousness for 100 years as he's building the ark and the Pharisees believing God, you know, they had a handle on what God did? Well, let me give you a starker contrast. What's the difference between Nehemiah, who instituted this idea of separation and divorcing yourself from unclean, and the Pharisees? Because everything the Pharisees defended were things that God instituted through Nehemiah, more or less, uh-huh. and Moses, right? Yeah. So, yeah. okay, is that, is, is that a good sharp distinction? And I, and I think the, the short answer is it's the bronze serpent. It's like God gives us forms. Like, this is the kind of the argument I've been having with somebody on, online the other day. It's like, you know, or not even an argument. We're saying, like, you know, like I say, in some sense, the only thing that's real is spirit. But the practical matter, we all live in a material world. It's actually a conversation which had with philosophy that, like, you know, yes, we all have to play roles within these finite constraints we have, and God has to talk to us through using things like words and pictures and metaphors and examples. It's like, that's right. just the way things are. And it's like, you can't get away from that, but yeah. we can't 
But once we say, okay, this was God's provision at this point in time because it represented what he was doing to us then, like yeah. that's a good, that was the locally good thing. It was adaptive using my terminology. But when we say, okay, let's keep doing that because that was so important, that becomes maladaptive and in the uh -huh. end becomes so corrupt. And like, you know, the point that you make about medicine is true. But let's remember what the world was like before we had scientific medicine. Uh, a world of, uh, you know, uh, patent, uh, patent medicine and old wives' tales and all sorts of things. So, uh -huh. you know, the, the interesting thing to me about the medical establishment is not that they're right or even that they're right. honest, but yeah. they are explicit enough that we actually have some concept of who and what to argue with and about. Right. You know, the CDC, I have lots of gripes about the CDC. Um, uh -huh. But, you know, at least they are there. <laughs> and the thing about, you know, one of the things I've learned to have grace for in terms of legitimate authority uh -huh. is that even when it's corrupt, at least acts as a focal point for aggression, which is not a small thing at all. Uh -huh. And it's always uh, a little dangerous to undercut legitimate authority because then it's like, okay, if you're not willing to set yourself up with the same level of public scrutiny and accountability, then are you actually moving the ball forward? Right. Uh, but anyway, the, the point is, is that like, I understand why the Pharisees, you know, reacted the way they did, given, you know, the, the near dissolution of the entire state of Israel to intermarriage during the time of Nehemiah. Okay. So, it's not that it's unreasonable or, or un incomprehensible. It's just the problem is, is that we get so caught up in that thing that we miss God when he shows up. Yeah. That's why I'm referring to my plan B. Okay, but let me finish my point, and then we can discuss this. I feel like you've heard me more or less what I was trying to say there. Uh, they're still on the, the third thing. You describe the Pharisee, as I understood it, as thinking that they understand God's perspective. Is that... Close. Well, they're, they're, so yeah, so there's two points. One is that they claim to re represent God, and yeah. secondly, that they believe that they understand God. Okay, so it's the representing. I mean, it's it's a, okay. Significant. It's a conflation of the two. They yeah. they represent God, um, and in my mind, that goes to, and so they want to dictate behavior for others. Um, and you right. would and say I, that. I, I, I don't. I don't. I don't want to go there yet. Okay, okay. All right, I'm ready to go on to yeah. your third point. Yeah. Um, the, so but my point was that, so plan A is to, you know, get around the people who are against God to tear it down. Uh -huh. Plan B yeah. is to get the people who say they are for God to uh, subvert it from the inside. All right. And plan C is to get the teams from plan A and plan B to fight each other so much and justify themselves by pointing out the sins of the others that uh -huh. they, they, they usually perpetuate a deeper lie. And that's what I, so when I look at the narrative of history, I see that there's a plan A, I see that there's a plan B. And so when you, uh, you talk about the demonic behind the spirit of control, there absolutely is such a thing as a spirit of control. No question right. about it. Okay? okay, don't disagree with it. There is another thing well, which, uh, for lack of a better term, I will call the spirit of lawlessness, uh -huh. uh, which is endemic to American Christianity. <laughs> uh -huh. um, you know, that's part of our, our, our founding sin. 
Um, and I sent you an essay on personal freedom or beyond personal freedom. I don't know if you had a chance to read that. Yeah, I responded uh, to email, I think. I don't think I saw an email response to that. If I did, uh, um, oh, it was very brief. I, I told you. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, uh, you saw it. Anyway, so the point is, is that like, yeah, I see the spirit of control, but I also see a spirit of lawlessness. And for lack of a better term, I hate to use this word, but I think I have to go there, which is okay. self righteousness. Hang on a second. That has no desire, no desire, no explicit desire to control or coerce anyone, but as a practical matter, um, um, is uh, unconcerned or mm -hmm. undesirous of being accountable for the uh, externalized consequences of their actions. Hmm. Okay. And and I see that a lot. Okay, uh, that one too, which is which is, and like to me, the classic canonical example of this is the the slave owning founding fathers. Okay, is the that what? they didn't you know Jefferson did not see any particular contradiction between saying all men are created equal, and keeping slaves. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because, you know, like, hey, you know, the, the whole point of being a free man is that I can, and, you know, that was maybe a venial sin in Jefferson, but it became a mortal sin uh, in, you know, the, by the time of the Civil War. Um, uh -huh. Regardless, it's like there is this thing which says, well, this let me control my own body, my own environment, my own choices. And so right. what if, you know, and, and at least as a practical matter in American history, that uh, attitude has been also been used to justify a whole host of horrid sins like pollution, uh, like uh, domestic abuse, uh, and so forth, which uh, from people who are very much like, hey, you can't control me. Don't tell me what to do or not do. And so uh, I think Satan uh, enjoys both of those in different ways. And he even more enjoys pitting them against each other. And that is what my perspective on the real spiritual warfare is. Okay. So I want to see if you can uh, try and summarize back what you heard me say. Yeah, okay. So you've got uh, the spirit that uh, rejects God, the spirit that uh, embraces God, and the spirit of lawlessness that uh, simply says, don't tell me what to do. Sorry, no, let me, okay, yeah, right. I, I confused two, several different issues. Let me, let me make my statement again in more concise terms because I, I drifted abound a bit, so I don't, follow you. so uh, let, me, let me make it more practical. In my, from my perspective, there are two yeah. spirits at work in America. One is the spirit that explicitly in this point in time sets itself as being against God, against the tradition, Christian tradition, uh -huh. and is very much focused on um, what they claim is the common good. Uh, right. They say, like, we want everyone to use politically correct speech. We want everyone to, uh, um, you know, allow full manifestations of sexuality. Uh, and be supported and protected in doing that. 
and you know that you know that I think is um, you know let's call that plan A. Okay. Right. That. The second thing is a spirit of that aligns itself with God or claims to align itself with God that uh, is primarily focused or the, 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 the rallying cry is personal freedom and that my autonomy to make my own decisions is what's paramount. Now, uh, why these people are against abortion still confuses me a little bit, but let's not go there right now. Um, wait, wait, you know, just wait, as a practice. I I'm now very confused because earlier when you were talking about the Pharisees, it wasn't a personal choice. I, it seems like you're now conflating yeah. the Pharisees. Yeah, so so, so yeah, I, I I apologize. I'm confusing two different things. Let me just okay. okay. Let me go back to the first thing I said. Then I'll turn the second thing I said. So the first thing okay. I said is Plan A is those who claim they are against God. Right. Plan and B we, is those who claim they are with God, and Plan C is okay. to get those two groups fighting each other. Okay, so that was the first uh, triad I was making. Uh, yeah, the second thing the that I was the first two meet on the outside help to fight each other. It just seems like that 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 is a classic war. Well, actually, no, I think they do because actually, um, from my perspective, uh, is that certainly they enjoy fighting each other, right? No question about it. But like Satan's plan is not uh, is that like he doesn't he wouldn't actually mind if the world was in perfect chaos. I don't think Satan would be okay with that, right? Yeah. But once religion shows up, then he has to deal with it, and so he likes whipping up people to do all sorts of horrible things in the name of religion. You know, he enjoys that too. It, it's a concession because he still has to give the enemy some some airtime. Uh, right. But, you know, he can he can work with that if he has to. And he doesn't entirely mind if that side wins, because then he can make the corruption more deep and pervasive, as you know, arguably happened towards the end of the Catholic rulership or hegemony over Europe. But, right. you know, when that falls apart, he has a plan C, which is more diabolical uh, and more subtle, which is to like, OK, let's keep these two groups fighting each other and convincing themselves that they're righteous against the other. Um, one, you know, and so there's lots of uh, hypocrisy and countervailing points, but that's just kind of the, the gross oversimplification of what I mean by plan A, plan B, and plan C. Um, so let me just stop there before I confuse things further and see if you heard that. Well, so in, in plan A, you concluded in an earlier portion with the phrase, we want everybody to. Um, these are okay. So, so, okay, so let me let me let me uh, try and make two different points then. Okay. okay. So there's a plan A, B, and C that I talk about, which is really talking about people's p posture towards God. Okay. Okay, towards Yahweh, if you will. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, you know, so let me just okay. This, then there's the second triad. Let's call them um, left, right, and bloody. <laughs> just, yeah, okay. Uh, have, okay, so the left side is a communitarian impulse to uh, try to create conformity. Okay. The right side is the individualistic impulse. So right. Like, I want to do what I want. No one else can tell me what to do. Uh -huh. And the, the, uh, the uh, so in some sense, it's interesting. Someone said the difference between fantasy and science fiction is fantasy deals with gods and science fiction deals with politics. Okay. And 
I think it's like, so in the uh, fantasy, the classical world, the fight was uh, around God. Uh-huh. In the modern world, the fight is more about politics. And to me, okay. the interesting thing is precisely the communitarian impulse on the left. I mean, it's not clean or pristine. There's a lot of opportunism in both directions and lots of weird contradictions. But as a crude strike, you know, the left is focused on their highest ideal is communitarianism, like everyone's equal. Uh, uh, and the right's highest ideal is individualism. And okay. uh, Satan is happy with either extreme, but in, uh, he's just as, he's almost, he's, you know, uh, he's even more happy when he can get them to fight against each other and justify themselves as righteous by appealing to the other, by pointing out the other's vices, which they refuse to acknowledge. Okay. So there's a, you know, so there's a, a classical uh, theological triad and a modern political triad that I think are two manifestations yeah. of Satan's plan. Okay, so one one triad uh, rejects God or embraces God or what's the third alternative so, there? So one, 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 I want to be precise in my phrasing. Claims to be against God or claims to be for God. Whether they actually reject or embrace him is a different question. Okay. Okay, claims the point to. is that they're claiming to do, yeah. And what's the third point? Um, the third point is that is that Satan's plan uh, is like, you know, he doesn't particularly mind if each side wins, but he's almost as happy as if neither side wins and they fight each other. So plan A is to make, you know, this group win, okay. plan B is to make the other group win, plan C is to make them just fight each other out. And right, either so of those three scenarios, he's actually happy with. Right, it's not a third he's, group. He survives. Yeah, it's not, it's a, not third a third group. group it's a, yes, it's a third dynamic. Yeah. Okay. Some, so, yeah. So the, those who claim to reject God are winning. Those who claim to embrace God are winning, or to know God, or to have God's truth, are winning. Or uh, the two sides are fighting. Those are the three strategies you were talking about for Satan. Yeah. Okay. I'm clear on that. And then uh, you talked about those uh, that. Um, want everybody to conform to a certain agreed, uh, w- maybe not agreed to, but just want everybody to conform. Others that want uh, to allow individu- individuation um, mm-hmm. and those that, uh, and then the, the Satan is happy with either extreme or with the two fighting each other. Yeah. Okay. Okay, good. I think I feel heard. And I think I should probably stop now because, A, this is like two hours long, uh, or I guess an hour, over an hour long, and I need to get back to my day job. Um, and I feel like I made the point I wanted to make. I don't know what you think of it, but I feel like I've heard and I think somewhat understood. And that's as far as I was hoping to get. Well, if I got two more minutes. Sure. Uh, I'm I'm curious how you feel or think about uh, my latest impulse is to say, you know, since the policy makes people with my conviction unwelcome, uh, just to say to the group, uh, you, I can either come following my conviction and wear the mask and not wear the mask, or I can just stay away. Uh, which do you prefer? And uh, let the leadership explore that. Does that is that a violent approach, or is that is uh, that put me in the second category or third the second uh, differentiating and so, believing the in context. So, what I will say is, I'm not going to make a moral judgment on whether okay. this is the right thing for you to do or not. 
I will say uh-huh. that it is a um, painful choice that you're forcing upon them, and that um, um, in my um, so to me that's a, it, it, this is a good way for you to individuate yourself. Okay, so, and so can... a poor way for you to connect to them. And yeah. like, I think that's, and those are hard choices, right? So to me, this is why there's this tension. And sometimes yeah. there are dominant strategies where you can individuate and connect at the same time. Um, uh, but often in any practical term with a finite amount of time and energy to work with, there yeah. are these awkward trade-offs. And it's like, you know, uh, if you had the time and energy and wisdom to seek a dominant strategy where you could improve connection and individuation, that would be ideal. But I don't know if that's practical. Yeah. That's my analysis. I, uh, I, I, we just drove from, as you know, from Miami to Los Angeles and went into all kinds mm-hmm. of places without a mask. And it was, mm-hmm. it wasn't, a, it was, it had a very different sense than going to this conference where I've been part of the leadership team. And I know a lot of people that I think I'm going to make very uh, about by following my conviction. And so my thought is, well, maybe if I submit to them um, with these options that are acceptable to me, that I can uh, contemplate, uh, what I don't feel freedom for the Lord to do is to just comply with the request to show up and wear a mask. Um, yeah, so that's and, you, what and I think that is a, and, and I can acknowledge that that is from the Lord because of where you are in your journey. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, and like, you know, and so I can affirm that that may be the necessary thing to do. But yeah. at the very least, I think it's fair to point out, is, I would ask you to be mindful of the fact that uh, in order to um, reduce your tension, you are uh-huh. placing this tension on them, right? And that's better than some other things you could do. You could do it respectfully and gently and humbly and submissively, and that's a good thing. But okay. it, it is the you know the consequence of this is that this is placing the tension upon them, and that's just you know sometimes we have to do that. Right. There's no other better option. So I was just on the verge of sending uh, this brief text to the director. Uh, in much of the world, the gospel only advances through believers who debate government to follow their conscience in sharing the gospel. Okay. From okay. Let me, yeah. okay, let me, let me make a, uh, two different points there. There is okay. one way to say this, which is, hey, I just need to be honest with you where I am at. Mm-hmm. They, so, and this is, this is a point that I definitely want to talk about you some other day, is like, make it, if you're making this as a subjective personal statement, then I don't have any problem with that. That's just being honest. Saying so like, hey, I know you're in a difficult situation. You got a lot of things going on. And I don't want to make things difficult for you, but I got to be honest, I just don't feel comfortable showing up and wearing a mask. And I don't know what to do. I have two choices. I could stay home and, you know, not wear a mask, or I could come there and not wear a mask. And as far as, you know, from where I'm at right now, those are the only choices I feel are available to me. Do you have any advice about what you would prefer? Or can you share what you would prefer in that situation? So coming from a position of humility and weakness as he presents that choice, rather than cloaking it in sort of moral language or objective 
truths. So, that would be my part, advice. Yeah, okay. My recommendation. Because I yeah, think that well, that would be perceived very differently. Right. As as a leader within this uh, consultation or, or uh, conference, um, I feel responsibility to communicate what I see as hypocrisy. Mm. And, um, mm, 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 mm. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Right. Okay. And, this, is, and this is the thing that I violently. This is the thing that I violently object to. Okay. I'm okay with people taking responsibility. Mm -hmm. I'm okay with people uh, acknowledging weakness. I am not okay with presenting one as the other. Or sorry, presenting, but I can say, if if you feel that you are the responsible authority in this place. Not the authority, but a prophet is respectable to communicate what God asked them to communicate. Well, okay. So this is the question that I come back to. Okay, this is my personal belief. Okay, is that if I so is that if I um, um, if I have a choice, and I don't always have a choice because sometimes you have to make snap decisions and you don't have time. Okay, I know, but this is not one of those cases. Yeah, right. There's yeah. a certain urgency, but it's not immediacy, right? So. Yeah. Um, that um, oops, you cut out. Did I cut out? I muted myself. I muted myself. I got got to give my dog, he's barking at the neighbors. Um, actually, I'm not sure what he's barking at. He barks up, and when I try to find out what he's barking at, he runs somewhere else and keeps barking. Um, is that uh, the only authority I want to hold is the authority of Christ, which means the authority of Christing by taking other people's stress upon me and um, releasing it so that they, uh, uh, and having grace for them so that they can make an easy decision because I made the hard decision. And right. when you're, the way you describe it to me is it sounds like you're asking them to make the hard decision uh, because you can't see any other way out. And it's like, I have a, this is, by the way, this is actually my critique with, of the left is that they feel like they have very legitimate grievances and uh, frustration. Uh, but uh-huh. then they want to make that grievance the basis for their, their, that grievance the basis for their moral authority. And it's like, uh, no, I don't buy that. It's like, okay, if you want to take the position of moral authority, then I think it is, you know, what I saw, you know, Gandhi and Martin Luther King do was train people to demonstrate that moral authority by ensuring that they face more pain and difficulty than their enemies did. And that to me is true moral authority. Because so, if you share the thing and you feel better and they feel stressed, that doesn't meet my criteria of moral authority. Uh, so do the prophets speaking, uh, the you know, fire within their bones or whatever, Jeremiah, I'm compelled to speak 
uh, is that then violate your what you're describing? No, that is the law. The law and the prophets were given, you know, for a reason. Of course they did. But yes, but that's not Christ. Right? To me, oh. my definition of moral authority is Christ. And yeah. everything else has a place. It is a necessary, expedient thing that mere humans, that's all you can expect of mere humans. Right. is the law on the prophet. Okay, and there's a noble thing there to be willing to stand up for that. But I do not want that confused with Christ. Okay, well, I wasn't claiming to be Christ in this situation. I'm trying to be safe yes, exactly. what Christ calling me to do. And I see I the policy as uh, a straining relationship with a core portion of the group that I think is important for the future um, success of the group. So it, to me, this looks like we have uh, enshrined a decision that's going to be harmful in the long term. And uh, I believe God wants me to try and point it out as graciously as I can and not a, in a way that doesn't pressure them, but gives them the benefit of my perspective. So that's what I'm aiming for. Right. So but let me just say then, I think the way that I was presenting that of making yourself a lamb rather than uh -huh. a lion would be consistent with that. And that, in fact, I think it's actually more likely to be effective if you come right. to them in a position of weakness, you know, say like, I just don't know what to do. I just got to be honest with you, what I am feeling about my conscience, I can't do this. I feel like my only two options are A or B, and you put them in the position of strength. So it, it, it's, it, it, is, 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 is precisely, in that sense, maybe this is Christing. It's not taking advantage of your power and status and position authority as a member of the board to try to push them into uh, changing the policy, it is taking advantage of your vulnerability and saying, you know, look, as much as I'd love to be there, I got to feel like these are the only two options that I can live with right now. What yeah. do you want me to do? And then they have to face the consequences. They, they have the choice. If they want to become the, 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 the enforcers of the law, they take on that role. Okay. Right. And they either have to say, wow, you know, now that I realize the cost is this high, maybe I'll reconsider it. Or it's like, ah, geez, I wish I could. But, you know, I just can't because I feel like we got to be consistent. And then you say, okay, and then this is the point of the gospel, is that if you make yourself vulnerable and are treated unjustly, that is what releases the power of God to transform situations. Yeah. Whereas I think if you uh, come to them with the law, they will respond with the law and things will more likely escalate. Right. But if you come in vulnerability and humility, then whether or not they agree with you, grace will be released. Yeah. Well, and uh, that to me is the essence of nonviolence, actually, putting yourself in the position of vulnerability. Right. Uh, yeah. So I'll submit to to them and what they how they'd like me to handle my conviction. Um, we've gone 10 minutes where I asked for another two, so I should let you go. I'm, yeah, I and, and, and I, I reversed myself a couple of times, so I'm glad we took the extra time. So thank you for listening. Yeah. And um, 
God bless. I'm glad yeah. we were able to talk through some things and it gives us some places to start for the future. Let me know what happens. All right. Thank you. Hey, God bless you. Bye. Thank mm-hmm. you.